Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Our Lady in Doctrine and Devotion, the show dedicated to furthering the knowledge and love of the Mother of God, presented by member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Alexander Krasik, and I am joined by our guest, Father Herman Fleece, professor at Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Welcome to the show, Father. Hello, Alexander. I'm happy to be here again with you. It's certainly good to be back with you, Father, for our new series, Our Lady in Doctrine and Devotion. I am very much looking forward to what we have in store for this new series and its future. As a little introduction to the series for our listeners, this series is dedicated to furthering the knowledge and love of the Mother of God with conversations on miscellaneous doctrinal, historical, and ascetical matters relating to Our Lady, with a special emphasis on practical devotion. So we will really be able to cover a wide variety of topics, from devotions and doctrines to apparitions of Our Lady and her numerous titles. We can also take a look at sacred images and their history, and of course, Our Lady's life itself. There is such a wealth of topics for us to consider and discuss that the question really becomes, where do we start? Thankfully, as we were planning out this series, Father pointed out that we really needed to start with a discussion on the divine maternity. So why is that so important that we start with this doctrine, Father? Well, first, a very good question. Uh, Yes, well, to put it simply, is because the divine maternity, that is the, the doctrine, the dogma, that Our Lady is truly and properly the Mother of God, uh, is like the foundation of the whole edifice or building of Mariology. It's like the basis upon which uh, all the great privileges of Our Lady ultimately rest. So, for example, we are going to speak in this, uh, in this series, certainly, uh, soon about the Immaculate Conception. But the Immaculate Conception, as uh, citizens might know, consists in that Our Lady was preserved by a singular grace and privilege from contracting original sin. But why did God give this extraordinary grace to Our Lady? And the answer will be because she had been chosen to be the mother of God. And therefore it was, would have been unfitting that she, uh, if she contracted any stain of sin. Um, the reason being that our Lord was going to receive his human nature from her. So we see like from this, um, this uh, singular grace of Our Lady, the Immaculate Conception, ultimately rests upon her being the Mother of God. And then again, we can consider another uh, of her singular privileges, for example, her perpetual virginity. So this consists in the outstanding miracle that Our Lady was preserved a virgin, not only at the conception of Our Lord, but also while and after she gave birth to Him. So this is like a, a unique and outstanding miracle of God. And then the question will be again, why did God give this special privilege to Our Lady? And the answer is the same, is that it was not fitting that she who had been chosen to be the mother of God should, by becoming the mother of God, lose the honor of her virginity and any, any other of her glories by being the mother of Christ. Therefore, our Lord wanted that she be elevated to be a mother, but still remaining a virgin. So that illustrates what um, the point that all of her titles and great uh, privileges can ultimately be traced back to the fact that she was chosen to be the mother of God. 
a nice way to put it, or a figure will be uh, this one, that one can consider the, consider the divine maternity to be sort of like the roots, the roots deep in the, under the ground, and then all the other um, privileges, etc., are like uh, they stem from it, like uh, the trunk, and then we have all sorts of branches and flowers of different uh, colors and, and, and so forth. We have a beautiful tree, which will be Our Lady, with all sorts of a variety of, of gifts of nature and of grace and, and, and so forth and virtues. But the root is deep inside is, is that, uh, that dogma that she's the mother of God. That's a really good um, analogy there with the tree, everything blossoming forth from the trunk like that. So what then is the divine maternity? Could you please explain this doctrine to our listeners, Father? Yes. So it's actually simple. Um, It's uh, this, that the Blessed Virgin uh, Mary is truly and properly the mother of God. I noticed that you used with emphasis the words truly and properly. Why is that, Father? Well, the theologians do do that uh, ordinarily, and that is uh, essentially to exclude any false understanding or explanation uh, of the dogma. So when we use the words truly and properly and and equivalence, we are excluding uh, any false and even heretical, actually, heretical idea that Our Lady is a mother of God. Uh, yes, she's a mother of God, uh, sure, but only in an improper way or by a certain way of, of speaking or as some heretics would say, well, metaphorically and so forth and so on. But the, is, the essence of the dogma is that she is, again, truly, she's a true mother of God, so it's not a metaphor, it's not something in an extended or broad sense, but in a proper sense. And um, as we're going to see a bit, uh, hopefully, in this uh, show, this dogma is uh, based and understood in the, in the Catholic sense that, either, that she already is truly uh, the mother of God in the proper sense. That is uh, found in Revelation, both in sacred scripture and in tradition. Father, Protestants claim to this day, much like the early Nestorians, that this doctrine is not found in the Bible. How would you answer that? Well, simply, I would say it's completely false. It's simply false. We know as Catholics that in order to believe a a doctrine, the doctrine doesn't necessarily have to be in sacred scripture because it can come from sacred tradition. But in this particular dogma, actually, it is clearly found in sacred scripture, uh, in the text of the Bible. So uh, I can give you a few examples. So in the Gospel of St. Luke, when Our Lady visits uh, St. Elizabeth, the Gospel says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And Elizabeth, being filled of the, of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth, says, and whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord, notice, the mother of my Lord, should come to me. Our Lady is called the Mother of the Lord, but in this passage, it is without any doubt, without any doubt, the Lord refers to God, the Lord. Uh, and therefore, we know from this passage of, of Holy Scripture that Our Lady is a Mother of the Lord, but the Lord here is God, therefore she is a Mother of God. Again, 
in the same gospel of St. Luke, we have the Annunciation. And uh, so we have that text, I have it here. St. Gabriel says, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son. And then he adds a little further, Therefore, the Holy, which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. So now we have, from this passage, we have that Mary gave birth to the Son of God, but the Son of God is God. Therefore, according to the Bible, she is really and truly the mother of God, because she's the mother of the Son of God. And then yet a third example we have also in the epistles, St. Paul to the Galatians. So St. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time was come, God sent his son made of a woman. So here is the argument is like this. If the man Jesus made of a woman is the son of God, and we know that from, from Holy Scripture, then that woman who is a mother of the son is a mother of a divine son and consequently the mother of God. And then as even a more simple um, argument is the following. In the Bible, we find that Mary is called many times the mother of Jesus and sometimes his mother, which is essentially the same. Uh, but Jesus, according to the Bible, is God. Therefore, according to the Bible, Mary is the mother of God. And to put all of the arguments in a, in a very simple way, we can reduce it to this, like a syllogism. Mary is the mother of Jesus, but Jesus is God. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. It's as simple as that. Um, so there's no, it's very clear that uh, the dogma is contained in, also in sacred scripture, the only thing that is not in the sacred scripture is the actual words mother of God. Uh, but the, the doctrine is contained in sacred scripture, as we have seen. There are actually many more arguments, but we don't have the time to go through all of them. The ones we, we saw are more than enough to prove that, importantly, not only according to the church or tradition, as some might concede, like non-Catholics, but no, certainly tradition teaches that Our Lady is a mother of God, but it is also taught in the, in the Bible. Well, since you bring it up, Father, that this doctrine was also found in tradition, could you explain that a little more in depth? Yes, when we speak about tradition, we can, uh, normally one starts with the earlier uh, testimony, so we can start with the very early church. So the very early church believed in the divine maternity of Our Lady. We can see it, for example, in the Apostles' Creed. So that's obviously the first creed, it's the basis of the other creeds, etc., etc. So it's like the foundation stone, so to speak, uh, of the creeds. So the very Apostles' Creed, uh, we, we have this in, in it. We profess faith in Jesus Christ, case, that is God the Father's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Born of the Virgin Mary. So we see here the earliest creed um, of, of Christianity uh, puts uh, as an essential part of the Christian faith. So the creed, uh, this is the simplest form, and the creed uh, is meant to be to give you all of the essential beliefs of Christianity. So it's, you cannot even say something, well, a, 
uh, later development that is secondary and maybe conducive to devotion, but it's not essential to Christianity. Here it's the, um, the position of Our Lady in the economy of salvation is something that belongs to the essence of Christianity. Therefore, the Apostles' Creed says, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, who, who is born of the Virgin Mary? Well, Jesus Christ, and we know from the very creed that he is um, the Son of God and God himself. So therefore, in the very text of the creed, we have the doctrine that our lady is truly the, the mother of God because that's the only sense in which the creed can be understood and was understood and believed by the Christians. Then if we move a little further, we, we have the very ancient liturgies. We have the, um, the reference to our lady as the Theotokos, which means exactly mother of God. It's a Greek word, but means that mother of God. So we see the ancient liturgies. Then we see the early fathers. The early fathers were uh, immediate or close accessors to the apostles, so they reflect the, the belief not only of the early church itself, but uh, even of the apostles, at least they reflect the traditions handed down. And um, so the early fathers taught the same. St. Cyril was obviously the great defender of the divine maternity, and he says as we said a little before, the, his enemies and historians, heretics, were saying, just as the Protestants say, oh, well, the, the name Theotokos, where is it in the Bible? I don't find it in my Bible. And he said the word itself, that is the term, those letters, are not there. But he said very importantly, and I have the quote here, he says, however, they have handed down to us uh, he speaks about the Holy Fathers. However, they have handed down, that's tradition, to us the belief itself. And in this sense, we have been instructed by the Holy Fathers. In our words, St. Cyril says, yes, the word is not there, but we received this from the tradition of the Fathers and uh, eventually comes from the Apostles. Uh, another quote of St. Cyril, he says, this name... Theotokos, was perfectly familiar to the ancient fathers. So he's saying, we are not inventing a name. We are just defending an, uh, a name which is due to our lady, a title, uh, because you are the innovators who deny that this should be given to our lady. And then, uh, well, naturally, St. Cyril was like the main champion of, of the divine maternity uh, in the Council of Ephesus. Uh, but the very count, the council itself uh, defined that the name Theotokos, Mother of God, was not only permitted or allowable, but was due to Our Lady. That is, the council condemns anyone who says the title should not be given to Our Lady. Um, so that's a summary tradition. Um, but uh, I will point out that uh, again. It's not a question of the word. The word is ancient. Uh, it's not in sacred scripture. But uh, as we just saw, the, the doctrine is found in sacred scripture. Well, since we have spoken about uh, sacred scripture and sacred tradition, and as also shown in the early church, could you tell us a little more about later pronouncements of the church concerning the divine maternity? Certainly. Um, 
These are actually still very early. The first one we can mention is the first solemn definition, um, which was obviously at Ephesus. So Ephesus was held in uh, 431. It was a third ecumenical council, and it was against the heresy of Nestorius. So the very first of the anathemas, uh, the very first one is, uh, reads as follows. If anyone does not profess that Emmanuel is truly God and that consequently the Holy Virgin is the mother of God inasmuch as she gave birth in the flesh to the word of God made flesh, according to what is written, the word was made flesh, let him be anathema. So that's the first uh, uh, solemn definition. If we go a little further in time, we have a second solemn definition in an ecumenical council. This time will be the second council of Constantinople. Uh, It was held in 553 and was the fifth ecumenical uh, council. So we're already in the sixth century. Again, another uh, solemn definition of the church. Uh, It reads as follows. If anyone says that the holy, glorious, ever-Virgin Mary is improperly but not truly the mother of God, if anyone calls her the mother of the man or the mother of the Christ, as if the Christ were not God, but does not confess that she is exactly and truly the mother of God, because God the Word, born of the Father before the ages, was made flesh from her in the last days, let such a one be anathema. Next, we move now, those are the solemn definitions of the early church, and then we have solemn definitions or official teaching of the popes uh, in the, the more modern times. So we have the profession of faith, uh, which was imposed by Benedict XIV upon the, Mar- the Maronites, that is, in order to receive them to the church, back to the Catholic Church, they had to profess certain doctrines. So this document is from uh, 1743. And it reads as follows. I profess that the divinity and the humanity by an ineffable and incomprehensible union in the one person of the Son of God have constituted for us one Jesus Christ. And that for this reason, the most blessed virgin is truly the mother of God. And then finally, I will refer to a bull of Pope Paul IV. Uh, He gave this one in 1555, and in it he condemns those who asserted that the most blessed Virgin Mary was not the true mother of God. So that's condemned by Paul IV. That was against the Unitarians, was a branch of Protestants, saying Our Lady cannot be called the, or is not truly the mother of God. So yet another condemnation there in the 16th century. So those are some of the main uh, official teachings of the church. Thank you for um, providing those key texts of the Magisterium, Father. Now, we have seen how it is the teaching of Scripture, tradition, and the solemn Magisterium of the church, that Our Lady is truly the Mother of God. The dignity of Our Lady is then obviously very great when you think about the fact that Almighty God elevated one of His creatures to be the Mother of God. It's, it's just words fail to describe how immense of a prerogative this is. Yes, actually, you are very right in that. Uh, you are exactly right because the uh, precisely the dignity of being the true mother of God is 
well, it's a mystery. Um, it's a mystery of, of the faith, but it's so great that it cannot be fully and adequately expressed in human words. And that is one of the reasons why the Holy Fathers, when they sing the praises of Our Lady, as they do so nicely, they use mainly, not exclusively, but mainly uh, Holy Scripture that is, is the divinely inspired word and is, um, they use many times some of the most uh, beautiful and even poetical uh, expressions of Holy Scripture in order to, in some way, express what cannot really be, you know, um, completely expressed uh, in, in a mere human language. So they, they uh, use more the, the divinely inspired figures uh, of, the, of sacred scripture itself. So that's a, a good point. And the fathers obviously use the Psalms. They do comparisons with the beauties of the Ark of the Covenant, the Temple of Solomon, which was like a, like a jewel, obviously. So it's like a, a figure of Our Lady's you know, supernatural beauty and all the virtues and so forth. And then we have also the city of Zion. And then the Holy Fathers teach that the Ark of Noah is a type of the, of the Blessed Virgin. So the Fathers use the, uh, those um, figures found in the Old Testament. And then why is it, as we just said, that this dignity cannot be fully and adequately expressed in human words? Well, one thing we have to mark is it can be defined, as the church does, it can be explained, it can be defended, and it must be defended, etc. But what we mean here is that, yes, we know she's truly the mother of God, but kind of to, uh, you might say, to completely grasp you know, all the import of that, how is that dignity, then that's uh, beyond our, our capacity. That's kind of uh, the idea we're looking here. And, um, but a key point here is this, why, why is it so? Because one might say, well, if, if Our Lady is a creature as she is, then why would it be that it's so, um, so, so high, the dignity? And the answer is actually that the dignity of the Mother of God is not to be measured by her own perfections, her own perfections, though they are very, very great, of course, but her dignity is to be measured by the dignity of her divine son. See, she's a mother of God. Her, her son is God. So therefore, the dignity of her as a mother is measured by the dignity of her son. How great, how wonderful is her son. And that will give you the dignity of a mother. So once you understand that principle, then of course, as well, you won't be able to understand the dignity of our lady fully because you nobody can comprehend it the infinite uh, glory and majesty of our Lord himself. See, that's a key point. And in that sense, St. Thomas uh, uh, wrote the following words. I have some actually very good uh, quotes from the Holy Fathers and Doctors, which uh, if we are mine, I would like to, to go through in, in this line. So St. Thomas says, uh, well, based on this principle which just mentioned, he writes the following. From the fact that she is the mother of God, the Blessed Virgin has a certain infinite dignity, derived from the infinite good who is God. And on this account, there cannot be anything better, just as there cannot be anything better than God. That is, God is, is infinite, and she is truly the mother of God. Then we have St. Albert the Great, 
also a doctor of a church. He teaches that, uh, again, the same as St. Thomas. In fact, St. Albert was the, the, the master of St. Thomas, the teacher. He says that uh, the divine son, our Lord, endows in a certain sense, gives our Lady a certain infinity of goodness as being his mother. Therefore, and he writes here is a quote, very, very nice quote. He says, if the fruit is infinitely good, the tree too must, in a sense, possess some infinite goodness. So he's alluding to our Lord saying that we know the tree by the fruit. It's a very, very good point. He says, well, here the fruit is our Lord. So the tree that gave us this fruit, mm-hmm. how can we describe it? Well, it obviously, is. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's a very good quote. And then uh, we have St. Thomas of Villanova. He says essentially the same thing. His quote is, certainly there is something infinite in being the mother of the infinite one. So all of these have in common the same principle that we saw. She is the mother of God. And her son is infinite. Therefore, she being the mother of of such a son, then that gives Our Lady a certain um, infinity of of goodness, as, as they say. Now they say a certain uh, or in a certain way, etc., because our lady is a creature, so of herself she cannot have any infinite perfection. The creatures have perfections that are have an end. In the case of our, in the case of our lady, it's like an ocean that it's like the ocean uh, has an end, or there is an end to grains, grains of sand. It's like, uh, but there is a limit. It has a limitation as being a creature. All creatures have a limitation. But here the point is, because we are not seeing her, uh, herself as independent from our Lord, but actually to the contrary, in as much as she is the mother of such a son, then because the son is infinitely good and infinitely majestic, etc., etc., then our lady partakes as much as possible in a creature to, to that. So that's kind of the, the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have uh, St. Bernardin. He writes that, the state to which uh, God exalted Our Lady as being his mother was the highest so that he could exalt her no higher. And then we have again St. Albert the Great, another beautiful quote. He says, The Lord conferred on the Blessed Virgin the highest gift which any pure creature was capable of receiving, namely the maternity of God. So it's the highest uh, dignity and uh, and the gift that any pure creature can receive. They say that that is there. Our Lord is infinitely about our Lady, but our Lord is God. You see, when you go to the order of, of creatures, then there's nothing that comes even close to, to our Lady, uh, because she's mother of, of a true God. Then we have, uh, la- the last of all is the one of St. Uh, Bonaventure, a very nice uh, quote. He, he was great. Uh, he says, his teaching is somewhat adventure, a classic place. He says, God could make a greater world. He could make a greater heaven, but he could not exalt a creature to greater excellence than by making her his mother. Very, very good uh, point. And again, the reason is that she's already mother of our Lord, who is infinitely good. So she cannot receive more honor in, in, in that sense. So those are some of the of the of the quotes. They are very good. In fact, they are good to to have at hand. They are good for for even meditations and, and 
you know, to foster in a true, a true spiritual life. They're really amazing quotes. How exalted a, a position it is for a lady to be the mother of God. It's, like I said, words fail to describe how great that is. So after these considerations, we can better grasp why it is in light of this sublime office that she has received other privileges from Almighty God and is worthy of a special veneration, which is known as hyperdula. Hyperdula? Hyperdulia? Uh, hyperdulia. Yes, hyperdulia. it's really a Latin word. Hyperdulia. But unfortunately, not to exceed the time of our first episode, we will have to speak about that on some future show. Yes, because um, our goal really was uh, in this first uh, show, again, like establish the, the basis, uh, like the roots of the tree. And then from that root of the tree, which is the divine maternity, we're going to have a trunk and then many, many branches and all sorts of uh, things that are derived from that, like as you mentioned, hyperdulia is how should we, we venerate Our Lady? Well, once we saw her dignity, then we can already uh, start guessing how, will, uh, how great will be the veneration. But that will be more like a second, more for a second episode or certainly some episode in the future. Um, but for now, we're going to, to focus on the divine maternity itself and by the way, this first episode is in a way is the most will be the most you might say strictly dogmatic. That is more like doctrine and definitions and condemnations and etc. Because we are kind of laying the foundation, and once that's solidly put in place, then we will only refer to the thing. Well, she's a mother of God, therefore this and that, and we we will go more to uh, some devotions. Um, ascetical practices and then uh, historical uh, points and then um, uh, spiritual life, etc. But here we are laying the foundation, which has to be dogmatic because the, the a true and healthy devotion to our lady has to be founded in, in the revealed truth, in the dogma, etc., and you build upon that. Otherwise, it lacks like substance. Mm-hmm. It will be only like, uh, you know, some nice thoughts or words, but it won't have any, any true uh, foundation. But we need that the, if we're going to be the, build a big edifice, we need that the foundations are solid. Yeah, I, I agree. We need, to, we need to have that strong foundation before we move forward. Yes. Especially since this dogma, as you say, of the divine maternity is the ultimate basis of various practices of veneration and devotion that we're going to be discussing in our subsequent shows. But still, Father, for now, is there any practical applications or practices that you would exhort us to as we conclude this first episode? Well, I mean, yes, I think it's always good to give some some, um, practical points. Um, I would say that since our veneration and love for our lady, as we just saw, has to be measured by her worth and her goodness. Um, and as we saw, her goodness is beyond our comprehension. And as St. Thomas says, in a certain sense, infinite, uh, because of the infinite goodness of her son. So if we consider all of this, we understand why after the love of God, uh, the love of God is the most important thing. It's a, it's a main thing, it's a, the love of God. But after the love of God, who God is infinitely good and infinitely lovable, but after him, after the love of God, 
we should strive to love our lady as much as we can, only a second after, after God. And we should remember, because of all these principles we saw from the great doctors, St. Thomas and St. Albert, etc., we have to remember always that we cannot love our lady too much. Uh, that's a, it's a false scruple. That is, provided that obviously we, we love God above all, all else, as he must be loved, once that is there, then how much you can love Our Lady, you cannot love, love her too much. Uh, in fact, one should try to love her as much as possible. Just imagine this. Imagine the love that Our Lord has for Our Lady. That is obviously it's incomparable, cannot be compared with anything, and nobody can get even close to that. I mean, even the saints or where might be. So, therefore, there, can, there cannot be any worries to love her too much. Because of how much we love her, it will be a grain of sun compared to the love our Lord himself has for her. So basically that means, therefore, how, what will be the limit of our love for her? Well, we should try to get as much as we can as we live in this life. And once we reach heaven, as we hope, we cannot increase in the love we have for God and for our Lady. Uh, but in this life we can, and therefore we should as much as, um, as, much as possible. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. Our next episode is entitled Devotion to Mary in the Mind of the Church and the Saints. In it, we will speak about the importance and sanctifying value of the devotion to Our Lady as taught by the Church and illustrated by the sayings and lives of the saints. But for now, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out this episode, Father? Uh, no, I think we, we have covered uh, all we, we had to say for today. But, well, certainly I invite our listeners to join us for our next episodes. Well, Father, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again next time as we continue this series. May God bless you. May God bless you too. Thank you.